We're in a series, this is week two of a new series that we're doing called Generations, Experiencing the Goodness of God in Every Season of Life. And uh, this, is, this is such a blessing. I haven't even said hi yet, but um, it was like a, there's an old show when I was a really little kid. Like a, I think it's called This Is Your Life. Is that the show, This Is Your Life? And they truck out these people. And uh, my, so Tim Hansen is here. Um, I'm just going to point you out. Tim led me to Jesus when I was a th- like a 13-year-old kid, um, gave me my first job sweeping a cabinet shop and introduced me to Jesus and, um, and taught me how to read the Bible. And he's sitting right next to Steve Scott, who was my youth pastor in high school, and he discipled me. Uh, every week we met my junior and senior year. He taught me how to read the Psalms. We read Mark together. These t- right here, right here, the sitting by each other. And uh, these two men shaped me at a level that very few have. And I'm so good to see both of you here. It's a blessing. I feel like something else is going to happen today or something because you guys are right. Like, what's next? Uh, here's the two guys that led me to Jesus and shaped me in the way of the faith. Um, and uh, the reason that Steve's here is to hang out with our staff team. He oversees our network of churches. We're in a denomination, as you know, called the Church of the, De- church of the Nazarene. Uh, the church word for that is denomination. It's an association. It's a network. It's a family of churches of which we're a part. There's a, churches in 160 world areas, and Steve oversees the Sacramento area, about 65 congregations. And uh, I'm just so grateful for the relational support that this provides. It's such a healthy network for us to be a part of. Um, we were started as a Nazarene church, continue to be a Nazarene church, of course, and there's a stability that comes in not just being a part of this network, but the relational connection that exists. So I just want to take an opportunity because I knew he was going to come today and just hang out with us to reiterate the value um, that we see in being a part of this, this family of churches. So, All right, so last week we kicked off this generation series, and, and, and Dolly Lester uh, joined me on the platform, 13-year-old student here in our community. And what we talked about last week was how adversity often comes early in the journey. Adversity often comes early in life. Adversity, adversity comes early in parenthood, early in marriage. It comes early in the life of faith often. And the reason I asked Indali to share with me about this is because last summer, uh, summer 19, Indali rode a thousand mile bike ride across Europe over the Alps and across four countries with his dad as a rite of passage experience. And in the first mile on the first day of the thousand mile bike ride, he crashed hard, messed up his bike, skinned his knees. And, uh, and at that point, you've got a choice to make, right? You either quit, um, which is often very tempting when you're bleeding, or you keep going. You keep going. And that's what he did. He got up. And he, he kept going the next 999 miles. And part of what enables people to keep going, once they hit a moment of adversity, which we all will hit at some time, and often it's early in the game, is when you know you're not alone. You know there are other people in this journey with you, right? Uh, he is on this rite of passage bike ride. He's not doing it by himself. His dad's with him. And there's this courage that comes in knowing that I'm being called into something greater, the next level of my life. Uh, rites of passage are a part of human culture forever, and our, our culture's kind of lost, um, I think, an intentional approach to rites of passage. We've devolved into things like getting your driver's license or your first you know, sexual encounter or really unfortunate things like that uh, as, as measurements of becoming a woman or a man. Um, and so in this community, there have been families for a decade now which have created intentional experiences for their kids, shepherded them through often a year of intentional mentoring 
which culminates in an experience that marks the stepping from one phase of life into the next phase of life, young adulthood. And so uh, last year, Angela Henning and I, she's our associate pastor, we put it all down in a book together. We just, a little tiny book, Why Rites of Passage Matter and How to Do One. And then at the end of the book are a series of lists, like ideas for how to do rites of passage, how to invite people to be involved in it. There's currently six families in the church right now, several of you here, who are involved in a rite of passage experience with your child. So we didn't intend for this to be, but people were asking about it last week because of Endale's story. A, a rite of passage doesn't have to be a ride across Europe. It can be an evening at home with a couple of mentors. That is also incredibly meaningful. And they run the gamut. So these are in the bookstore. That's what I'm trying to get to. If, you'd li- if this book would be helpful, please pick one up. They're in the bookstore, which is right off the cafe out there. All right, good. Okay, so it's week two of Generations. The, the subtitle is Experiencing the Goodness of God in Every Season of Life. And we're taking as our key text Psalm 23. So would you read this psalm with me? Many of you are familiar with it. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." Amen. A Psalm of David. This prayer may be one of the most cherished and appreciated portions of all of the Bible. Many of you are familiar with it. I know it's become an incredibly important portion of Scripture for me on a very practical level, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But what strikes me initially about Psalm 23 is its vast reach. So many people are familiar with this psalm. And what's interesting is that other psalms right around it, which you think might be more famous, are hardly known. And somehow Psalm 23 has kind of risen as the undisputed champion of all psalms. It's like the, it's like the most famous psalm. Uh, the psalm right before it, Psalm 22, is actually quoted by Jesus on the cross. But very few people know that psalm. But Psalm 23, as soon as you start to say it, a lot of people will hear and recognize the words of this psalm. It's one of the most recognized portions of scripture. It's literally become part of the vernacular of our culture, which is just amazing, really. You think about it. This is written 3,000 years ago. It's a 3,000-year-old piece of literature, and it's still part of the common language of our culture. In fact, the phrase, in the valley of the shadow of death, if you search that phrase and you filter it for modern music, it's included in almost a hundred modern non-worship songs. It's like people are talking about it, people are singing about it, and it's a huge range of artists that capture this image, including India Ari, Aaron Neville, Johnny Cash sings about it, Dave Matthews, uh, Notorious, Kendrick Lamar, Destiny's Child, Damian Marley, John Denver, and Iron Maiden. 
It's a wide range of people singing about the valley of the shadow of death. There's something about the image, I think, that David evokes with these words that rings true with people. It resonates with people. The valley, not just this, but the valley of the shadow of death. A lot of people have at least heard this phrase from this psalm, and many people associate it with with funerals. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, modern, there's some modern Jewish um, literature right now which is referring to this as a funeral poem. Uh, trying to position uh, Jewish scripture, the Old Testament in our perspective, as uh, in, in different... So this is a funeral poem um, in the view of some. Once I was in a hospital room with a man who was having an adverse reaction to chemotherapy. He was in super bad shape. He was super drugged up. He could hardly speak. I didn't think he was aware of my presence. I came into his room. I sat with him for a little bit. I prayed with him. And then before I left, I opened up my Bible and I read Psalm 23 to him. He had not acknowledged that I was there, but as I finished reading, he spoke up and he said this, oh, I must be in bad shape. Because <laughs> you know, his association with the psalm was like, this is death's door. This is, what, this is what the priest reads when I'm about to die, right? Or when I just did. Um, at least that's the way it happens in the movies. Have you noticed that? There's like a, an outdoor funeral scene. And just before the casket goes down, there's always a guy who's reading and though... You know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's what they're reading. I think it's unfortunate on one level. Um, and this is interesting to me. I would argue that the book which has influenced Christian worship in the English language more than any other book was written in 1549. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. It's the book of the Church of England which um, articulates and sort of sets down the set liturgies and prayers and services of the Church of England. So it's written... At a point in history when the corruption of the Roman church is boiling over, uh, people are pro, groups of people are protesting against the Roman church. They get called protesters or Protestants, and a whole new movement of Christianity starts, right, about 500 years ago. The book that shapes worship for Protestants more than any other book is the Book of Common Prayer. And it's really, and here's my point. In fact, the, the prayer liturgy that we use every week is an adaptation of the communion service out of the Book of Common Prayer. Here's why I bring it up. If you read the Book of Common Prayer, until recently, there was a section of the book said that was, that was for funerals. It was called for the burial of the dead. And it suggested two psalms for funerals. Psalm 39 and Psalm 90. Psalm 39 and 90. And if you read them, you'll understand why it's all about the brevity of life, the mortality of humanity, uh, dust, like the body returning to dust, the soul returning to God. They're all about that kind of thing. So it makes sense. And it's not until an American revision of the Book of Common Prayer um, in 1928 that Psalm 23 gets added as a suggested psalms, a, a suggested psalm for funerals. Isn't that interesting? So the association with Psalm 23 and funerals is a relatively recent one in Christian worship in English, and I would argue that it's really unfortunate because Psalm 23 is one of the most powerful life-giving psalms in the whole Bible. This is just surging with life. It is not a death song. This is a life song. It's, it's, it's part of its power, I think, is its ability to access our painful point. It's its ability to name the feeling of um, difficulty, challenge, dread, despair. In other words, David speaks to the hard times of our life, and that seems to have absolutely captured the attention of our culture. 
this human experience seems to resonate with the phrase, in the valley of the shadow of death. Many of us feel like we get that. We understand a little bit or maybe a lot of what that feels like, what it's like to be in that place. Apparently, people for generations have read this psalm and they've thought, oh, I know what that feels like. I've been there. I've been in the valley of the shadow of death, or I'm right there right now. David's experience sounds something like what I'm experiencing. But what's surprising about what David says um, is it's not surprising that he identifies that experience. We resonate with that experience. What's surprising is what he says about what he's having in that experience. What he says about being in that experience is this. He says, I will not fear. So he names this experience that is very common to the human experience, shadow of the valley of, de- valley of the shadow of death, but then he says, I will not fear there. I will fear specifically, I will fear no evil, which is so helpful to me because he's not denying that evil is present, is he? He's acknowledging evil, in fact, is there, um, but, we, but he says, I'm not going to fear it. I'm not going to be afraid of it. And then that begs the question, well, why shouldn't you be afraid of it? And, and what he says is because you, speaking to, the, to God, the good, the good shepherd, you are with me. You are with me. So David, to reiterate, David's common experience is the valley of the shadow of death. We get that. We resonate with it. Apparently, lots of people from all kinds of backgrounds also resonate with that and have for generations. Then David acknowledges the presence of evil, which is in the valley of the shadow of death. And this is what we expect Because it's not the darkness that's concerning, right? It's what's in the darkness. It's not the unknown that's concerning. It's what's in the unknown. It's the potential for evil or harm or pain or the the, uh, nearness of death. But then David's surprising declaration is that there is something else in the valley of the shadow of death. And to be more specific, it's someone else is in the valley of the shadow of death. And do you know who it is? It's God. It's God, his good shepherd. It's the same God who led him through green pastures. It's the same God who uh, led him by still waters. It's the same God who uh, refreshes and restores his soul. The same good God who was with David there is with David here. The same God in the valley of the shadow of death. And that, friends, is what gives David great comfort and great courage. That's it. David is talking about a spirituality that makes sense in real life, and I so desperately need that. That's what I'm looking for, a spirituality that makes a difference in real life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's some poetic um, shepherd symbolism there. Essentially, he's saying your presence, your discipline, your protection, and your guidance, they comfort me. So many, including myself, um, see Psalm 23 as such a powerful prayer of life, not a funeral poem. I would, I would call it more of a battle cry. This is a battle cry poem for me. Personally, it's become one of the most important pieces of scripture for me, and here's why. It has corrected my perspective, friends. It's corrected, it's confronted and then corrected my perspective. And I'm not talking about purely in an intellectual or theological, ethereal kind of detached way, but in a very emotional and personal way. This psalm has challenged me and helped me. Like when I begin slipping into despair about the past, or as I am... um, as I'm uh, very uh, susceptible to, if I begin to dread the future, or if I start to experience fear in the present, 
This is, Psalm 23 is something I shout at myself in my mind. I shout this at myself uh, in, in, in my heart, and I need it to correct my perspective. In other words, when it feels like things are headed towards a funeral poem, the words of this psalm for me, friends, they've become a battle cry. They've become a battle cry. And the truth that I'm talking about specifically is this, that God is with me in the valley, in it. God is with you in the valley. It's a game changer. This is the perspective-changing truth that is revealed in David's testimony. Even when we're in the valley, God is with us, and there's all kinds of ramifications of that, and they include this. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to be afraid of anything. David's perspective, and it's the biblical perspective, it confronts our default perspective. What is our default perspective? I would categorize it as sort of a modern Western dualism, uh, which in practical terms sounds like this. Well, this is a good season, and this is a bad season. This is a good place, and this is a bad place. It was a good time yesterday, but the day before that, it was a really bad time. We separate the two. We categorize them as either or. So we talk about bad seasons, and the reason this is destructive is because of, according to our default perspective, and we've been trained in this. We've been not in the church, but in the culture, and probably the church has in some ways um, upheld it in, in some unfortunate ways. But here's the way we think. In bad seasons, it feels like God is at best absent or at worst angry. It's a bad season. He's nowhere to be found. Maybe he's abandoned us. And maybe it's our fault. Maybe it's because of something we've done. And then there are good seasons when God feels present. Maybe I feel like I'm blessed. It's a good season. Everything's going great. It's clearly, you know, it's, it's a mountaintop. It's, I'm ha so happy with how life is going. I'm a blessed person. It's a good season. And from our default Western perspective, these two don't overlap much, if at all. We, we, it's a dualism. We see them as either or. Now, this might be oversimplifying it a little bit to make a point, but I would argue that we all have this tendency to, to exaggerate the category in which we place experiences, memories, um, uh, relationships, all kinds. It's either good or bad. Um, and, and it's a good time that we see God as being present, and the unfortunate and destructive thing is if it's a hard time or a bad place, we have a hard time reconciling that with God right? David's testimony in Psalm 23, it confronts this perspective, and I think it corrects this perspective, and we need it to. We need it to. I'll tell you two reasons why. The first reason we need it to is because it has to do with space. It has to do with this place. The truth, friends, is that God is in this place. God is in this place. God is everywhere. Therefore, God is also here. God is in this place. The common Western perspective, it kind of carries this tone that if this is a bad place, God's not here. Or at least I can't experience his goodness here because this is a bad place. So I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a bad place. So now my option is I, I just better get out of here as soon as I can. I better leave this place. And until I do get out of this place, I have reason to be afraid in this place. It's a bad place. Association, God is not here. I'm even separated from him potentially. This is how we can tend to think, but this is not the truth. 
Certainly not from a biblical perspective. The truth is God is here. He's here with me in this bad place, in the valley of the shadow of death. God is here with me in this place. And not only is God here with me in this place, but God can be experienced in the place. This is the testimony of David. We read the Psalms as personal experience, right? But this is what David is saying. I am experiencing God's goodness in this bad place, in this difficult place. Not only is God with me here, but I'm being affected by the presence of God and the power of God in this place. This is the truth, that God is here. So what does that mean? I don't have to go somewhere else, okay? I don't have to go somewhere else in order to experience God's presence. I don't have to leave as, as fast as I can. Sidebar, sometimes you should leave. Sometimes you should leave. There are legitimate and good reasons to leave. But, you know, specifically and, and strictly speaking, a good reason is not because God is not there. Because <laughs> God's everywhere. God is in all places, right? Sometimes uh, there are good reasons to leave, but God is not there is not a good reason. And I need to know this truth, friends. This is not just theory. This is important. I need to know this. Why do I need to know this? Because sometimes... Leaving is not an option. It's not that simple. Sometimes I can't just decide, oh, this is a hard place. I'm out. On Friday, I was at an outdoor cafe with some family having lunch. <laughs> and the conversation at the table right behind me was so radically offensive that I got up and I moved to another table. Because <laughs> sometimes you can. Sometimes you can just move, right? But most of the time, it's not that simple. We're in a place. It's a hard place. And we desperately need an alternative to just leave. And do you know what that alternative is? Experience God here. That's the only other eye. If I can't leave, I got to figure out how to experience God right here in this place. And the good news is, according to Psalm 23 and other scriptures, you can. You can experience uh, God in this hard place. This is the testimony of David. I was in a dark valley. It was a really hard place. And I experienced God in this hard place. So the truth is, God is always here. That's the first Here's the second. We need Psalm 23, the perspective that comes from it for a couple reasons. One, because it relates to place, and second, because of what it says about time. Uh, and it's a similar idea. The problem with the way most of us have fallen into thinking as sort of a default is we categorize. There's good times and then there's bad times. Uh, and and this, this can be really challenging. We can say, okay, if this is a bad time, then we need to, we can feel like we need to leave this time, which isn't, it sounds weird. You can leave a place, you can't really leave a time, but we try to leave a time. We try. This is what we say. I just got to get through this. That's how we say it. I just got to get through this, get this over with, right? Just got to push through this, hurry up. It's this either or thinking again applied to time. So if you're in a good season, that doesn't necessarily fix it. You become consumed with trying to preserve it and hold on to it, make sure nothing happens to it. Hold it, hold it, such a good season. And if we're in a bad season, you try to get through it as fast as possible, medicating yourself, distracting yourself, whatever it takes to just get through it. This perspective, it just has devastating ramifications for the spiritual life, devastating ramifications. The most dangerous is this, the idea or the, uh, like the assertion or the association that God is not in this difficult time. That is a devastating, it's not true. 
And, and, and believing that is devastating. In order to connect with God's goodness, I need to get through this time. Like this difficult time is a forest in front of me. I have to go through it. I will be alone. And when I got to get through it, though, so I can experience the goodness of God on the other side. That is not a biblical per- paradigm. That's not the way David is describing reality here. No, God is in this time. Life is hard right now, but God is in this right now time. To say that God cannot be experienced in this time and only after this time is passed, it's such a disintegrated view of life, isn't it? it? It's such an anemic view of the presence of God as if there are sort of barriers or restrictions as, uh, that affect God's presence. Please tell me then, how, if that's the way it is, and I'm arguing that it's not that way, but if that's the way that it is, how should I, how should I approach a three-year cancer treatment? Am I just supposed to like grit and bear it until I get through it and then when it's not a bad time, God will be there again? What hope do I have at the front end of a fractured marriage? It's going to take years to build back up. If God's not in this hard time, it's a hard time. Or why should I keep going when I've lost my life partner and I'm grieving and I'm lonely and I can see decades down the road and it sounds and it looks very difficult to me? Why should I keep going if God is not in this hard time? You, there's no good answers to that because they're faulty questions. The, the truth is this. God is in this time. God is not, think of it like this. God is not only everywhere, but God is every when. Okay? He's not just here. He's here now. God is in this time. Okay? He's in this time. You can experience God's goodness not just in the next season, but in this season. You don't have to wait for this season to be done in order for you to experience the goodness of God. God's goodness can be experienced right in the midst of this hard time. Game changer for me. Okay, it's changed things for me. Because I was in the beginning of a very long season of difficulty and dread, and I wanted out. I wanted it over. And it was not going to be over for a long time. So I had to dig deeper and find a new alternative. And here it is right in the Bible. God's here right in the midst of the hard time. This is a spirituality that makes sense in real life, friends. Not some fluffy, feel-good, God's so good and I'm so happy kind of thing. No, this is a spirituality that makes a difference in real life. David experiences the goodness of God in hard places in the valley. He experiences the goodness of God in a hard time. Here's the big idea. God is here and God is now. You can experience the goodness of God in every season of life. Glory to God, and thanks be to God. David experiences the goodness of God in the valley, not after he walks through it. And it continues. Later in the psalm, I won't get into this today, but he says a similar thing. He says, you, my good shepherd, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I mean, talk about bold. Not after I defeat my enemies. In the presence of my enemies, God's provision is set before me. Is it easy No, it's not easy. This is not easy because the time is hard, because the situation is hard, because the place, you're in a hard place, right? It's not easy, but it's possible. And there is a process here um, that we can engage in that is rooted in in the story of the Bible and the testimony of the faithful. And not just those from old, but those who are ahead of us in our journey here in our life today. Let me uh, invite Dr. Tony Carlisle to join me for a few minutes up here. Uh, We were talking about this concept at my Tuesday morning men's group, um, 7 o'clock every Tuesday morning at the office, we lead a men's group on the 
previous week's sermon. We kind of Monday morning quarterback it and discuss it. And Tony shared a perspective that I just thought it only comes, this is the kind of wisdom that only comes through experience. And so I'm so grateful that you are willing to share with us today. Tony worked all night in an ER room and then at four o'clock had a grandson. And you know, just now you're playing drums. You guys just learn how to not sleep. Sleep is uh, optional. All right, that's good. I, I, they didn't teach that in my grad school. Yeah, good. Okay, so Tony, share with us a little bit of the context of a, of a valley in your life and tell us about the insight that you shared with us, please. Uh, a lot of you know this, and forgive me if you've heard it before, but 22 years ago, our 13-year-old daughter Maggie got sick on a, on a Friday while Julie and I were actually at Saddleback uh, Church mm. attending a church conference. Wow. So we came home. And, uh, and she passed away seven days later hmm. in the hospital, Kaiser Hospital downtown. And uh, the next morning, I was out by our pond, and I was literally sort of diving into Psalm 23. I was leaning on it. I was just trying to, to understand what was going on, what the heck happened, and how am I ever going to make sense out of this? And my neighbor came over who... We weren't buddies or anything. I sort of knew who he was, but we had spoken just a few times. And he came over. He had heard, and he came over to offer his condolences while I was outside. And um, and he said, you know, I lost a daughter 20 years ago or so in a car accident when she was in high school. And it floored me. I thought, mm. wow, I, I didn't know that. And I was the fact that I didn't know that by looking at him mm-hmm. really rocked me. It's like, mm-hmm. you mean you don't have a sign around your neck saying, hi, I'm the parent of a child that died or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I longed to be in his shoes 20 years later. Mm-hmm. I wanted this to go away like right now. I wanted to run through the valley of the shadow of death. I wanted to sprint. I wanted to skip it. Yeah. But you can't skip it and you have to walk through it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we sort of came to a decision then that you know, if, if we really believed in this God that we're worshiping, we need to let him be our shepherd through this. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that really became obvious was the, the, the next day after she, she died in the evening and the next morning on a Friday, mor- Saturday morning, my whole family's in our bed, three kids, nine, 11, and 15, and my wife and I. And, and we woke up and we sort of thought, is this real? Is this a dream? Did this mm-hmm. really happen to us, you mm-hmm. know? And, and for a moment, it was r- really, you didn't care if you got out of bed ever again. Yeah. You thought, I'm checking out. This, yeah. is, this is too hard. I, I can't do this. Yeah. And the thing that set the, the tone for the rest of, frankly, our lives and allowing God to be our shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death was our nine-year-old son, Nick, who's the father of the grandson that was born six hours ago. <laughs> now he's, 30, he's 32 years old. Yeah. He looks at us and he goes, Mom, aren't, you know, he kind of saw that we were struggling. Mom, aren't you going to make me breakfast? And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make you breakfast. We're going to get up. Mm-hmm. She put makeup on. She, she, and, and that decision was the, just the turning point for allowing God to be our shepherd through this long walk. Yeah. And lastly, you know, it's, sometimes I struggle with the, the terminology because it says through the valley of the shadow of death, which sort of implies you get out on the other side someday. Yeah. And you kind of don't. Mm. It's so much better. But every Christmas, mm. my wife is the one that decorates the tree because I can't do it. We've got all these ornaments with Maggie's name on it. I yeah. can't do it. 
Yeah. You know, March 23rd is her birthday. So when that comes, I enter into the valley of the shadow of death again for mm. a day. So, mm. but anyway, so mm. it's just a long, hard walk. And I can't imagine doing it without my shepherd. Amen. Thank you, Tony. We really appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks. Yeah. No shortcut to that place, right? Let me teach you something really briefly. This is a prayer exercise that I want to encourage you to try this week. Uh, just give me a couple more minutes. Um, this is called the St. Ignatius Prayer Examine. That's the old fancy name for it. And many of you are already doing this with your kids or with your family in the evenings before bed or at dinner. And essentially, it's this. You ask, what was your high and what was your low? Anybody do something like that? What was your best part of the day and what was like the hard part of your day? And that's a really great way to do it, especially with kids, because it makes more sense. What was your high? What was the best part? What was your low? When were you sad? Um, and that's the way we've done it primarily in our family. But here's the actual language. Here's the, here's the old and ancient um, um, exercise that Ignatius taught his monks in his monastery. Here were the questions. At what point in the day were you the most aware of God's love? So thank God for that. And then at what point in the day were you not aware of God's love, not aware of his presence? That's the way it's actually articulated. At what point in the day were you the most aware of God's goodness, God's love? It was like you knew he was present. And at what point in the day or the week or the year or the relationship or the meeting or whatever it is that you're examining, at what point did the presence of God just seem like blocked? You, you weren't even aware of it. You didn't even think about him, right? This is a really helpful exercise. I recommend it to you. Um, because what will happen as you engage in this for a season, even if, a, if it's just a week, you'll begin to anticipate uh, patterns and you'll approach times when you often encounter the presence of God with greater gratitude and anticipation and you'll be more intentional about it because like, this is the moment. And then the parts of your life which often seem just blocked from God, like I never think about God at work or whatever the situation, begin to, begin to work on or pay attention to the possibility of actually encountering God in those places, because he's there too, right? He's there too. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the hard times in our life, which have been the fertile ground for teaching and learning truths that we need to know, and there's no other way for us to have learned them. Um, yeah, they just come through the experience of the valley. Have mercy on us. Those of us who are grieving and still in deep pain, I pray for your uh, presence to be known and recognized by, by us. And I pray, God, that you would give us a sense of hope about your presence here and now and a sense of courage and comfort because of your love for us in this time and in this place. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.